It's all right, baby. You're at Super superstitious now. Everything's right. safe here. <laughs> oh, my God. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Super <laughs> Of course, what we're trying to say is, welcome back to another episode of Super Superstitious. The paranormal podcast about the science behind the spooky and strange and stuff. I'm uh, Wyatt. I'm Jake. And, um, yeah, we are in week two of August Around the World. world. That's right. <laughs> Each wondering when the other's going to chime in. Staring at each other with pure terror. <laughs> oh, no. Um, if you are returning... You'll recall that last week we revisited the greater Middle East area to talk about jinns and cryptids. This week we are headed off. Oh no, Skype's finally doing its thing. And uh, yes, we have zero technical difficulties. <laughs> this week we will use our second of our four very real plane tickets to mm-hmm. travel to the Pacific Islands. All See of them what's up at with once. All of those. That's right. It's a very small trivel. Trivel? Trivel? What am I saying? I don't know. Trivel sure. and distance. Those little fuzzy trivel things from Star Trek? Trivel. Yeah, it's the trouble with trivel. <laughs> and let's see. It's an even episode, meaning. <laughs> you got I this. go first? Nope. <laughs> Damn it. It means I go first. But before even I go first, I think we should take a little. Well, time to say that our store has some cool updates. Oh, what are those? <laughs> we got some new merch in our store. <laughs> they are uh, uh-huh. a design that we've had out for a little while in poster and sticker form, now available in hoodie and t-shirt form. That is Goya's The Sleep of Reason Produces Monsters, turned into <laughs> a super superstitious style wonderful work of art by Katie Amaker. What? Newer still from the same Katie. We've got uh, the um uh, the we we got a jackalope. There we go. What? <laughs> um, <laughs> just as cool as the Doraku that you have all loved so much. We now got a nice jackalope skeleton with perhaps cooler. Yeah, features of uh, both a bunny and der um, anatomy going on in there. <laughs> it's got like more of it's got ungulate. It's got goodness. You're gonna love it. Available in six colors. As again. Uh, sweatshirts, <laughs> t-shirts, in different styles. It's great. Check it out. I will be doing that myself, and I can't wait. I have my wallet out. <laughs> I have my my dollars. Buying a shirt. <laughs> awesome. And you can, too. All right. <laughs> so, first off, now that we've taken care of that business, I think we have other even more enjoyable business to get to, which is, of course, Pander, Mm -hmm. the patron appreciation neural die for evaluation of risk function, which we will use on our NCAAA device. If you don't know what these things are, go listen to more of our show (laughs) in the back catalog. (laughs) It's an arcane computer which we uh, hook into our brains to calculate uh, which creatures in the world our Patreon patrons should be aware of individually customized to each of them good stuff so let's turn it on there it goes Ooh, oh that kick right on that time much better and we'll Shall plug, we plug it on in into the backs of our skulls there you go i barely even feel it anymore ah 
And uh, today we're going to focus our energy on Amber from Arcata, California. Amber, all right. So we will focus on Amber. Amber, you need to be on the lookout for. Be on the lookout for. Why? Why Chivo? Why Chivo? Huey Chivo or Huey Chivo? I'm thinking it's mine. So I'm thinking Why Chivo. Clearly, the computers sure. <laughs> Uh, it's a legendary Mayan beast. It's half man, half beast creature <laughs> with burning red eyes, uh, specific to the Yucatan Peninsula. As you could probably find out from anyone in that area, it is said to be an evil sorcerer and can transform itself into a supernatural animal, usually a goat, dog, or deer, in order to prey upon livestock or presumably grass. <laughs> Uh, in recent times, people have associated it with the chupacabras, but as we know, the chupacabras isn't a thing, and Waichivo is his own thing. He is. He's keeping, keeping to his own rhythm, which includes sporadically showing up in the news. Yeah. Yeah. yeah do, wait. Basically, unless you're livestock, you should be okay. Yeah, because sometimes he turns into a goat and then does mischief and eats livestock as a goat. So, Amber, you're probably the greatest of all time, but I doubt you're actually a goat. <laughs> and you should be fine, but if you do see a tall, goat-headed, man-bodied person coming your way, or really any goat, dog, or deer coming your way, um, <laughs> hide your goats, hide your kids. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for supporting us and on thank you, of course. Patreon. Anyone out there, you too can have your creature cryptid something or other uh, calculated for you by our arcane computer. You donate even just a buck a month. A simple buck. A humble buck. A, a humbuck, if you will. Yes. Uh, I dare say we should unplug this thing from ourselves before it gets too... I want to leave it in, but I will pull it out. That's yeah. what she said. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, our Patreon has all kinds of cool stuff for you. You can get access to bonus content. You can get neat stickers. It's cool. Okay, so, as it is an even episode, obviously you go first. Mm -hmm. Something that I knew and did not need to be reminded of. <laughs> so, Jake, where are we going? I'm going to talk about a medieval Micronesian megalithic masterpiece. And I know that medieval, meaning the Middle Ages, only applies to Europe, but you know when I'm talking about from my having said that, so that's fine. Did you mean Europe or something? <laughs> yep. I'll get to all of that, but first, Wyatt... Rocks. Can't live with them. <laughs> Can't live without them. <laughs> Talking about basalt. Uh, what do you know about basalt, Wyatt? Basalt. It's a volcanic mineral uh, usually formed underwater when volcanoes erupt in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Am I right or am I correct? <laughs> Often leads to the sedimentation of black sand, much as can be found in the upper lake of Michigan. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's an igneous rock, as you said. In fact, it is the most common type of volcanic rock on the planet. Uh, when we talk about layers of the earth, you know, the crust, basalt makes up the overwhelming majority of oceanic crust. So to put mm. it simply, when lava cools into solid rock, it's pretty often basalt. This is especially true in the middle of the ocean, either from ocean ridges or from hotspot type volcanic activity. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, of course, a whole bunch of different types of basalt, hmm. uh, and as much as I'm sure you and all of our listeners want to hear about each and every one in detail, 
I'll just say that under the right cooling conditions, a lava flow may constrict on one axis, say vertically, but be unable to easily do so along the perpendicular axis, say horizontally, and this mm -hmm. causes cracking. But not yeah. just any old normal rock with cracks in it without cracking. This is fresh, still cooling lava we're talking about. So instead, mm. fracturing occurs in cool geometric patterns that result in a bunch of columns. We call mm -hmm. this columnar jointing, or in this case, the resulting rock is called columnar base uh, basalt. What am I, British? Basalt. Columnar basalt. I thought there was only sea basalt and table salt. <laughs> uh, it's particularly common for these columns to be hexagonal prisms, like at Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland and at Devil's Tower in Wyoming. I'll let Richard right. Dreyfus take it from here. This means something. This is important. Uh, in fact, based on that little prompt from Mr. <laughs> Jaws, I think today I'm going to take Mr. us Jaws. on a little kind of journey. Uh, we started way up on the very clearly hard sciences side of the pendulum. Oh, yeah. So why not let's swing all the way on over to the Bunker's Banana Sandwich Cuckoo Town side. Ooh, my favorite. I will ease it in first with some basics, uh, then the wackness, then some more facts, and then later we'll kind of settle in the middle and uh, see how that feels for us. So Sounds good. I will be sure to take us back out on the other side, back into science. <laughs> Everyone will go to sleep. I'm just telling you right now, get your pillows ready, get your blankets out. <laughs> it's bedtime, baby. All right, Jake, take it away. <laughs> to begin with, here's a bit of text from historicmysteries.com. Uh, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, between the equator and the 11th parallel, lies the ancient city of Nan Madal. Hmm. It is attached to the eastern coast of the island of Pohnpei. Considered to be one of the greatest archaeological wonders of the world, it is a mysterious engineering marvel, and experts are baffled by the mystery of the island. Hmm. Nan Madal, part of the Federated States of Micronesia, is comprised of a vast tapestry of 92 artificially made islets, all interconnected by canals. Hmm. Thus, it is also known as the Venice of the Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> the royalty, or the Sodalurs, uh, lived on Madal for about 500 years from 1100 AD to 1600 AD. There are even tombs on the island. The mystery is the megalithic structures that make up the city. So that columnar basalt that I mentioned before, well, hmm. if those columns break apart from one another, what you end up with is basically big stone logs. Uh, and the walls of Nanmadal were constructed primarily with these basalt logs. <laughs> uh, giant rock pillars were moved from miles away and were stacked horizontally, log cabin style, to form walls as high as 50 feet and up to 17 feet thick. Whew. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so let us now look at some pitches. Show me the pitches. Look at all of those. Uh, yes. Very wow. carefully arranged, uh, really cool basalt columns. They look kind of like, for folks at home, essentially macro-sized um, Lincoln logs? stones ah. and Lincoln logs kind of combined. So your classic farmland cobblestone fencing meets Lincoln logs times five. <laughs> exactly five. Uh, here's a little map showing the whole layout of it where it's this great big... A series of artificial islands that they built on the water next to the actual main island of Pohnpei. Wow. Um, now, when you say Pohnpei, for folks at home, that isn't Pompeii, is it? No, Pompeii is the name of the city in ancient Rome, uh, P-O-M-P-E-I-I. -I. This is P-O-H-N-P-E-I. Oh, yes, thank you very much. 
And uh, yeah, here's one of the sea walls they made, mm-hmm. like a breakwater situation. They were like, sea wall. <laughs> uh, got some more goodness going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, yeah, very cool. It's some leaves. Very ruinsy. Yeah, very ruinsy, but very cool construction overall. But absolutely gorgeous. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'll give a little more background, this time from that Khan Academy article I just showed you pictures from. Mm-hmm. It says... Namadal's basalt and coral rock structures were built from the 13th to the 17th century by a population of less than 30,000 people, and the rock's wow. total weight is estimated at 750,000 metric tons. Holy moly. Yes. Uh, archaeologist Rufino Mauricio pulls these vast quantities into focus for us by explaining that the, the people of Pompeii moved an average of 1,850 tons of basalt per year for over four centuries, and no one knows quite how they did it. Mm. Oral histories of Nanmadal describe great birds or giants moving the basalt rocks into place. Whoa. Others recall the magic used by the twin sorcerers Olosopa and Olosipa to create a place to worship their gods. Mm. Uh, but you know there are modern folks who's champing at the bit to get wilder with it. I was going to say, this feels like um, ancient aliens time. It's uh, We're getting there. Back to historicmysteries.com. Uh, Madal sits halfway between the Hawaiian Islands and the Philippines. Severe storms and typhoons begin at this location. This happens when cold air comes into contact with the warm waters of the Caroline Islands. So far, so good. Uh, mm-hmm. Research indeed shows that many severe storms originate from around the location of Nan Madal. But perhaps this is not coincidental. Why mm. not? Because this area generates severe storms, storms rarely hit it directly. This makes it one of the safest places in the Pacific. Namadal and Kasrai, an islet similar to Madal, create a 300-mile-long zone. This zone is the birthplace for typhoons and the place where they develop their strength and severity. They soon grow too big and end up ravishing the Philippines. And the, 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 actual, the article says, not ravaging, but ravishing. So these are sexy storms, I take it. Oh, ravishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joseph Newman, the inventor of the 1979 energy machine bearing his name, which basically is a motor which he claimed produced more mechanical <laughs> energy than the electrical energy fed into it, that Joseph oh, Newman, wow. uh, he declared late in this past century, probably I'm guessing in the 90s, that the major effect in respect to hurricanes is electromagnetic. For a hurricane to sustain itself, it does not solely depend on the heat of the water on which it travels. Hmm. So Newman concluded that temperature was of secondary importance in the production of a hurricane, countering that electromagnetism was the most important factor. Hmm. So because it's not just water temperatures, it must almost exclusively be electromagnetism instead. Never mind shit like air pressure or water temperatures or myriad other factors. None of that. It's got to be electromagnetism. Probably coming from the uh, Egyptian pyramid as well. <laughs> well that's, yeah, it, it ends up sounding a lot like that as we get going here. Pompeii, <laughs> the island attached to Madal, has unique and constant subtle seismic activity. Seismic activity generates piezoelectricity. Now, you oh, may this remember... Is sounding very much like this. Go yeah, on. Sorry. Piezoelectricity is something we covered in our second ever Super Duper Sister special report in episodes 19 and 20. Mm. Uh, I talked about how when certain types of rock crystal are strained by physical bending, they actually produce a small electrical charge. Mm -hmm. And on the inverse, when a small electrical charge is applied to the crystal, it can bend. So this oscillating uh, bending slash charging relationship is how things like quartz watches work. 
More right. on that in episodes 19 and 20, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but according to this theory, the piezoelectricity produced in the island's rocks by seismic activity works specifically within strangely magnetized basalt to focus a concentrated coronal discharge skyward. So this is where it starts to sound <laughs> like the Great Pyramids as Power Plants theory you hit up in episode yeah, 66. <laughs> We're playing all the hits today. As a result, yeah. this all makes the location of Nan Madal an ancient weather manipulation structure controlling weather patterns for all of the Pacific. Thoughts? Um, very, very startled to learn this. <laughs> um, fascinated that what is effectively a massive body of water that undoubtedly has its own incredible, significant influence <laughs> on the weather would be instead over ruled by a tiny pocket of rocks interested to hear more <laughs> uh i regret to say that it actually does get weirder from there because this theory is just about why this site is so important to the people who lived there yes. the real good stuff we have to dig into how the structures were made again we're talking multi-ton stones transported across miles in order to be stacked into structures that could right. then play a ceremonial role in fucking weather control and just to be sure i'm hearing you right he is saying that Namadal controlled the weather of the entire Pacific. I do believe that that is his uh, where he, what he was getting at. I don't Wowzers. know. If it's unclear from this is one article anyway whether he believes that it was like a deliberate thing or if it was like just a a fact that the island was already doing that. Like so a they passive, decided to passive quality that, or rather, yeah, not not designed to do this, but just did do this. And then they consequently created a whole ceremonial site based around that. I think that is right. what his theory is getting at. Not How, that they were. Maybe you've already said this too. How big was Namadal or is the remaining? It encloses an area approximately 1.5 kilometers long by a half kilometer wide. Tiny, tiny, tiny. <laughs> uh, okay. So, cool. Carry on. Yep. Uh, so, for the real good stuff, we want to look into how the structures were made. And by the real good stuff, I do mean the absolute worst stuff, which can only mean, as you alluded to earlier, the television program, Ancient Aliens. Oh boy, we're actually going there. <laughs> uh, I We are kind of going there. I'm actually not going to give those dinguses any more airtime than I already have just by invoking yeah. their name. Uh, mm. You can totally picture what explanations they might offer for how these structures might have been made. Basically, mm -hmm. any, any explanation, no matter how far-fetched and extraterrestrial-based, except for any th a theory like, I don't know, Micronesian folks from a thousand years ago were maybe just really good engineers. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's just a lot of them talking about different weird supernatural almost kind of or, or very advanced technology being involved in the construction. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I'll kind of mention later that there were also theories about the idea of this being the last remnants of a lost continent, hmm. a super advanced civilization, but I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But, uh, yeah, so there's some, some bonkers theories about Namadal. But as promised, I will wrap up with the more grounded stuff. Mm. Uh, for this, we'll get back into the Khan Academy article. They say that beyond the more magical creation narratives explaining the various islands' construction, aspects of the oral history of Namadal passed down through many generations correlate with archaeological evidence. Hmm. For example, oral histories describe a series of canals cut to allow eels to enter the city from the sea. A well on the island of Ided is said to have housed a sacred eel who embodied a sea deity and to whom the innards of specially raised and cooked turtles were fed by priests. Wow. So eels were actually were considered sacred and it was forbidden to hunt or eat them. 
Hmm. And they've actually found traces of the canal system as well as large mounds of turtle remains on Ided Whoa. are among the archaeological evidence that supports these histories. So they did, uh, you know, let eels in and then like actually kind of uh, worship this eel in a way or at least treat it, treat it pretty well. Yeah. Interesting. And, it, and the evidence does suggest that that totally happened. Um, hmm. wh- while the exact engineering of Nanmadal itself eludes us, we know that the construction of elevated artificial islets had commenced by 900 to 1200 CE, and that around 1200 CE, a first monumental burial took place when a chief was interred in a stone and coral tomb there. Hmm. Uh, this significant ceremonial event was followed by a period of truly megalithic building from 1200 to 1600 wow. uh, CE. That's such a epically long time yeah it's a good 400 years of them just like continually building it all up uh and making Jeez. these roughly 100 um artificial islands wow among these madal pa in the southwest was the administrative center for the complex and madal pawe in the northeast was its religious and mortuary sector hmm. uh, this area comprises 58 islets most of which were inhabited by priests the most hmm. elaborate building is a nandu uh Nanduawas, the royal mortuary, which covers an area greater than a football field. Wow. Uh, its walls are 25 feet high, and just one of its cornerstones is estimated to weigh 50 tons. Oh, my God. Elsewhere, log cabin-style walls of stone uh, reached 50 feet in height and are 16 feet thick, we kind of said that earlier, and were topped with thatched roofs. Hmm. All were protected from surging tides by large breakwaters and seawalls, like the one I showed you earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, archaeological and linguistic evidence suggests that certain islets were dedicated to specific activities. Uh, Depahu De was dedicated to food preparation and canoe building. Hmm. Peinering, place of coconut oil preparation. Uh, Sapinlan, place of the sky. And Konderek, place for dancing and anointing the dead, were all hmm. dedicated to the activities their names actually translate to. Tombs surrounded by high walls can be found on Pain Kittel, Karyan, and Lemanku. I th- from what I read in a Smithsonian article, it sounds like they have relocated the remains of previous um, like uh, chiefs and stuff off of right. those islands, but but the tombs are all still there. That's so cool. Um, Namadal is simultaneously an engineering marvel, a logistical puzzle, and the product of a sophisticated economy and highly stratified society, all are presided over by a dynasty known as the Saudalurs. Hmm. Uh, many oral histories describe them, and there are many possible interpretations of these, but most agree that for many centuries, Pohnpei was under the rule of a series of chiefs, Sao, descended from Alosopa, who began as gentle leaders but came to exert extraordinary power over their people before mm. deterior- deteriorating into tyrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, under their rule, the people of Pohnpei not only built the non-Madal structures, but also made tributes and food offerings to the Sao Dalur including turtles and dogs, which were reserved for their consumption. Hmm. Uh, this period of history is remembered as the Mwahin Sao Delur, the time of the Lord of Delur. Wow. Uh, b- because Namadal was a city constructed on the water out of a series of artificial islets, food and water had to be brought from Pompeii proper to anyone living on them. Right. Thus, archaeologists conclude that there was a whole lot of servitude going on, and so the people who were living right. there were really important, and the effectively peasants had to keep bringing like making trips out in the water to bring them the stuff they needed mm. the dynasty was overthrown by the cultural hero isokelekel who destroyed the last of the saudelurs in a great battle following his victory isokelekel divided power into three chieftainships and established a decentralized ruling system would that essentially have been a political coup or like 
pretty know, much at that point i could see he did defeat the last of the ruling like that whole dynasty and establish wow. a new government in his place that's crazy and yeah, he, he divided the power up into three separate chieftainships and established a decentralized ruling system called Namwarki, which remains in existence to this day. Wow. Uh, he took up residence in Namadal on the islet of Pekapu. Hmm. A century later, uh, his successor abandoned the site and established a residence away from Namadal. The site gradually lost its association with prestige and its population dwindled. The hmm. religious ceremonies uh, continued to be held there from time to time until the late 1800s. Wow. Uh, there are modern folks who also believe that Namadal is evidence of a great lost continent, I think I mentioned before. Hmm. Um, and so they say that for a people with such engineering skills to no longer be at that site, they must have been wiped out by something truly catastrophic. Hmm. Even though we know that those people just moved out of the Stone City and back onto the normal <laughs> island and are in fact Why would anyone still ever there. need this place? Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, again, the Namwarki system of multiple chiefs co-governing the area is still in place today, and they have first say over what happens with Namadal, preservation-wise cool. and tourism-wise. Right. In, in fact, one of the current chiefs is a current uh, is a direct descendant of Isokelikel, or at least he wow. was a current chief as of 2009, when mm-hmm. the Smithsonian Magazine article I read was published. I assume he's still kicking today. Say so the question of the site's original construction is still under investigation. Mm-hmm. By and large, it seems like the answer is just thoughtful and sophisticated engineering. Mm-hmm. and a shitload of people power. <laughs> uh, Namadal specialist Mark McCoy has used the chemistry of the stones to link some to their source on the opposite side of the island, uh, Pompeii, wow. the naturally occurring island, and uh, the creators of Namadal managed to quarry columns of basalt from a site in Sokes on the other side of Pompeii and transport mm. them more than 25 miles to the submerged coral reefs that are the foundations wow. of Man- Namadal. There, it's believed they just use ropes and levers to stack them in an intersecting formation, making raised platforms, ceremonial sites, dwellings, tombs, crypts. Uh, they didn't use any mortar or concrete. They relied solely on the positioning and weight of each basalt column hmm. with a little coral fill to hold each structure in place. That is so crazy. Yeah. There's still debate over how some of the very largest columns were actually dragged out into the water, however. Mm-hmm. Uh, one theory suggests that stones were brought from the mainland using bamboo rafts to float them across the water. Right. However, in 1995, while making a documentary for the Discovery Channel, uh, all attempts by the producing crew to transport stones weighing more than a ton in this way failed. I think I actually saw that show. I think that's exactly the show. I wondered that when you said you had seen it on TV before. I wondered if it might have been that exact yes, uh, special. Yes, as so. you mentioned the bamboo rafts, that I flashed back on that very immediately. But I had not recalled the testing of it on that show. I just remember seeing one of those columns sort of wrapped in bamboo and it's sinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's there's still a lot to learn about the amazing work of the people of Pompeii from way back when. But hot damn if it isn't a cool place. Oh, hell yeah. In July 2016, Namada was finally declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site So just four years ago. Wow, that's kind of crazy it took that long. Yeah. Also, this may be a curse of the end. A very good ending. It's probably <laughs> my favorite part of the whole segment. Um, too cool, man. Namadal. My God. That's like a place I would love to visit. It looks so cool. I mean, I again. Other than our current visit yeah. there now. It'd be cool <laughs> to come back here <laughs> to this place. But first and four Phantoms most, I simply cannot <laughs> go on. <laughs> No, of course. No, that's very cool. What do you think of the place? How do you think they got the the big old rocks 
around the block. Uh, having not watched the special um, to see how they were doing it with bamboo, I feel like there's, after a certain point, there's, if you put enough buoyant stuff on a heavy thing, it will eventually float. So right? there's no reason why they couldn't have just gone like ham with their bamboo wrapping. Bamboo, um, if you will. <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Something like that. Good call. I agree. Especially if it's, you know, taking them, oh, I don't know, 400 years to do probably not much else. Uh, you got to figure they, they put their backs into it as a yeah. culture. <laughs> <laughs> um, totally cool, though. Oh, my God. Mm. All right. Well. As you were kind of getting into a second ago, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about a, a great beer company in western Ooh. Massachusetts. Massachusetts. That combines elements of, Wyatt. D&D. Heavy metal and beer to make something, Jake. I think you were mentioning what this was called. Good ass beer. Time. Ooh, Is that right? sounds gnarly, but it's very good. <laughs> ass beer. If you're in the New England area and considering a purchase of a brewed beverage, please consider buying Four Phantoms mm-hmm. and uh, keep your eyes peeled for two new offerings mm-hmm. from these bad boys. Battle Jacket. Yeah. She's a truly heavy metal-ass pilsner, any and all sales of which will go towards racial justice organizations, which is pretty freaking awesome. Yeah. And Jake, if you want to take the other one. Uh, Johnny Flip Flops, a new version of their sour. Uh, it's a mojito sour, so it features mm. some lime and mint stuff, and uh, portions of the proceeds go to animal welfare organizations. So you really can't go wrong with two awesome-sounding beers that uh, do awesome things. What is better than donating directly to any of these companies, getting a beer while you're doing it? Mm-hmm. So, of course, if you're a little wary of going out in these essentially now permanent coronavirus times, mm-hmm. but are within driving distance of Western Mass, Four Phantoms is available for curbside pickup. Yeah. And as ever, if you do nothing else, <laughs> please... Get the strange metal puzzle thing that you see in gift shops, and you're like, maybe I should get this. And then you like pick it up, and you look at it for a while, and you're like, eh, fuck all that. <laughs> of a website called untapped.com, <laughs> where you can leave beer reviews and leave a favorable review. That's untapd.com. It will help boost their profile and their exposure. We're going to put our heads together one of these days, figure out how to read the reviews that are from you fine listeners, and we will we will read them on the air, and it'll be great. By the time we figure it out, there will probably be one. So anyway, <laughs> thank you, Four Phantoms. On with the show. Uh-huh. And by on with the show, I, of course, mean... On with this horrible, nagging feeling that something is creeping up behind us. I yes. think I should look over my shoulder and see what... <laughs> oh, it's the wheels. Oh, boy. Wheels. Ah, uh, you guys. I thought I had a ghoulish feeling in my guts. Yes. yes. Time for a round Shadow. of... Shadow. Lance. <laughs> Roulette. At... Roulette. The spooky game slash evil ceremony that Jake and I <laughs> engage in every so often on this yeah. show. It's been a while. The coin and the wheels are thirsty, hungry, and otherwise in need of sating. Um, they followed us course, all the way to the middle of the Pacific. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're here on Namadal with us. Um, now apparently made out of basalt, I believe it is pronounced. And um, the coin, of course, is somewhat fleshy somewhat <laughs> no. metallic 
And now, I think I'll need to use some sort of buoyancy device in order to flip it because it is massive. Yeah. Um, as a refresher to folks who either forgot what this is or have never heard this insane thing we're describing right now, <laughs> uh, Shadowlands Roulette is when we take this big cursed coin, we flip it to see which of us is going to then spin one of two giant Price is Right style, style. Uh, showcase showdown wheel thing. <laughs> one is the dreaded Wheel of States. The other is the repulsive wheel of other countries and uh depending on which one we spin we then read a story from that place it's spooky as all hell it comes from the ancient website of the shadowlands.net and uh we read it it's a good time i also want to note that as of just a couple of months ago the shadowlands.net founded in 1994 and seemingly abandoned way back before the internet started looking good has been revived it is active once again the creators are there and ready to keep on curating it the shadowlands lives we are 25 years old the shadowlands has been getting drunk for four years <laughs> first paranormal website is back wow yeah look at this revamping don't worry the slash places part of the website looks just the same as it always has i'm so glad for that all right so jake let me be the first to flip this coin all right Let's pick it up here. Get some bamboo underneath. Okay. I'm just going to ask you to join me in jumping onto this end of the bamboo. Oh, right, flip here? the coin up. Right, this part? Yes. Okay. One. Are you ready? Two. two three. Three. <laughs> ah. oh, nice black. All right. It basically just flipped over <laughs> onto the side that indicates dreaded wheel of states. Jake, I guess we all saw it coming. So I will just climb up on the wheel. Uh, Here we I go. Will, I'll hand you my microphone. Yep, which is plugged into the stones themselves. Looks uh -huh. like this piezoelectricity thing really is working. That's great. And really is controlling the weather. I'll take your mic. Thank you. Anything you want to say? What? Um. Uh. <laughs> Not yet. Okay. You can start climbing. I'm just gonna get up here and just give it a spin. I have good both mics spin. now. Both mics are Like that mic back. <laughs> um, landing on Kansas. Kansas. Oh. oh. I believe we're in Kansas anymore. <laughs> and Medicine Lodge, Flower Pot mm. Mountain. Very spooky. The story of this place has lived among the locals, and not sure if it is fact or myth, however the story goes. <laughs> In the early settlers' days, pioneers settled on Flower Top Mountain, and they believed the Indians, their words not mine, were peaceful, however one fateful day, their opinion changed. The way this was discovered was through a riddle passed down through generations about a diary kept by women on that spot. The riddle was eventually solved and revealed the location of the supposed diary location was a gnarled tree at the top of flower top and sure enough there stood a small dead tree that stood out from the rest oh. quote unquote historians dug up around the tree and found the diary <laughs> the woman oh. talked about how the indians her words not mine were peaceful but the last entry out of nowhere stated indians hostile oh god it is along with the story that every settler was murdered and to this day that gnarled tree still stands the odd thing about the tree is that it leans north and its branches point north while everything on the other side of it is dead, but the trees around it lean south and the north side the dead or dying branches. Uh, and then in yellow text here, it's there's wind. an update which says a few more points of interest about this place. 
It has been rumored that a cult was active in this very location back in the late 80s and early 90s, and cows around the area were found dead with one thing wrong. Their udders were sliced off. But not by animals because the cuts were one uh, were, uh, 100, uh, were too straight and clean. Those udders were then sacrificed by the cult on Flower Top, a trail that no cow could have taken leads to the top. Utterly horrifying. Yup. And uh, that's that's that story. Wow. I know we're in a tropical location, I think. Uh I know it's a sunny day other than the dark storm clouds that have formed immediately over the game show area that we're now playing in. Uh (laughs) But I'm scared. I can't (laughs) lie. That was a scary story. I want to cry. But I'm going to have to get brave now because it's my turn. Jake, do you want to, I guess... I'll join you and just yeah. You, I saw that while I was telling the story, you did helpfully put the bamboo back underneath. So let's just hop on on three, one, two, two three. three, and look at that! It just splashed the coin over <laughs> once again. Flipped over, but it does just still say the dreaded wheel of states on it. That's very strange. That is very very creepy. I guess I will just have to do that. <laughs> So, Jake, if you'll take my mic. All right, I got your mic. Which means Go. that I have both mics now, which is pretty neat. I'm into that. Here. Can't hear you at all anymore. Okay, I'm going to yell down at the microphone. That's better. I guess I could have held it up for you. That would have been helpful. All right, here we go. All right. Oh, a very, very nice spin. Look at it go. Smash. <laughs> I fell off the wheel when I jumped off. Um... <laughs> so wet now <laughs> north dakota all right turns out there's a lot of stories in north dakota and i will do oh, yeah this one grand forks university of north dakota stature hall parentheses technology department off to a very scary start uh-huh. several students have witnessed an apparition of an arm laying on the floor out of a doorway in the second floor graphics dark room I think we've done this one. Really? Uh-huh. <laughs> the story desired to be told again. Yeah, keep going. It sounds super familiar. I could be wrong. <clears throat> Each student described the arm as a man's arm, appearing sporadically throughout the year and visible both during day and nighttime. A professor conducted soundings of the building and discovered abnormalities on the second floor, <laughs> tracing them back to the darkroom film developing closets. His lead weight he was kind of dropping around uh, <laughs> ended up indicating to him that there was an arm that was there. <laughs> <laughs> Most students without any knowledge of the ghost's existence report a feeling of being watched and a brooding presence. Other students have experienced a floral perfume scent wafting through the second floor computer lab during downtimes for the school and experienced a sense of being watched by a young woman. This second ghost moves throughout the computer lab area, causes small breezes in a in a air controlled room. <laughs> wow. And that is even more chilling the second time, my goodness. Perhaps I will do a very, very short one. Alright. Grafton High School. Sightings of a man walking in the hallways and playing around with the lockers. Wow, that was even scarier. And your reading a second story, I, I think, has pleased the wheels because they're both making this kind of purring sound as they kind of just paddle away across the water. Yes, indeed. 
I was going to describe it as a juddering, gurgling, blood-splashing scream, but I prefer the description of purr. I think it's their take on that anyway. But yes, uh, in spite of the fact that we are very much in the tropics uh, in the middle of summer, um, I made just a cold shiver down my spine, Wyatt. So I think it's time that we concluded this round of Shadowlands. Shadowlands Roulette. Okay, Jake, it's finally time. Mm-hmm. Keen-eyed listeners will recall hearing me say previously, for instance, during episode 105, <laughs> that I would eventually, some dark and stormy day, at long last, talk about Easter goddamn island. <laughs> well, my long dramatic pauses here should tell you that today isn't not that day. <laughs> oh, man. This one feels like the oldest, most well-resolved mystery in the Book of Mysteries. <laughs> Easter Stupid Island. <laughs> so, I want to invite everyone to go ahead and go make tea, or watch your food heat up in the microwave. If you want to, I won't be offended. Easter Island won't be offended. Or stick around, I don't care. <laughs> Do whatever you want. <laughs> That's the spirit. That's the kind of energy you want to go into your segment with. <laughs> no one should care and better not care. <laughs> Don't if you even if I catch anyone out there caring, <laughs> I'm gonna give you give you a little pinch. <laughs> so, um, hopefully everyone is tucked into bed now, and possibly already asleep. And Jake, if you want to take a nap too, I don't mind. <laughs> so here we go. In 1722, Dutch explorers led by Jacob Rogovin arrived on a highly isolated and nearly barren island in the Pacific. Though inhabited, the island's most striking feature was a haunting array of almost 900 giant stone figures, mostly big old heads, (laughs) staring out into the horizon. The scale and care involved in their construction was obvious and made it evident that their creators were likely master craftsmen and engineers. It was Easter Sunday, so in celebration of the momentous discovery, Rogovian named the island Pesh Island, or Easter Island. The deeper history of Easter Island, perhaps more appropriately referred to by its Polynesian name, Rapa Nui, mm-hmm. actually extends over a thousand years back and into oral tradition. The legend goes that hundreds of years ago, a small group of Polynesians, led by Chief Hotu Matua, rowed two large wooden outrigger canoes across hundreds of miles of open sea to find a prophesied land to start their new life. They named this place, everybody, Rapa Easter Nui. Island. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Rapa Nui is nearly 2,300 miles west of South America and 1,100 miles from the nearest island. The newcomers chiseled away at volcanic stone, carving the Moai statues to honor their ancestors. Eventually, the giant palms that the Rapa Nui depended on dwindled. Many trees had been cut down to make room for agriculture. Others had been burned for fire and used to transport statues across the island. The treeless terrain eroded nutrient-rich soil, and with little wood to use for daily activities, the people turned to grass. 
Although these events, not literally turned into grass, <laughs> although these events are generally accepted by scientists, the date of the Polynesians' arrival on the island, why their civilization ultimately collapsed, and what was involved in the construction of their famous megaliths has formed the basis of pretty much continuous crazy town speculations and actual good science archaeological debates mm-hmm. for decades. I'm focusing on the good old science debates today because, damn it, they're still fun and cool. Mm-hmm. So My money, off, however, is on um, weather control from Nyamadal coming and wiping out folks about the night. Yeah. So first off, a generally agreed upon date of arrival had been sometime around 800 A.D., but as of 2007, arch- uh, findings by archaeologist Terry Hunt, then of the University of Hawaii, suggested a rather different version of events. Hunt and his team had gathered samples of charcoal, tools, even bones, at what they thought was one of the earliest sites of human habitation on the island. They sent these bits to a lab for radiocarbon dating and found, to their shock, that the samples dated to 1200 AD, four whole centuries later than expected. Damn. This is highly significant, as Jake's response is appropriately indicating, and it suggests that deforestation and collapse would have happened much, much faster than originally assumed. And the impact from humans on the environment was fast and immediate. Hunt suspected that humans alone could not destroy the forests this quickly, but his answer was in the sand. Mm-hmm. A plethora of rat bones. Oh. The rat bones did it. <laughs> Scientists have long known that when humans colonized the island, the Polynesian rat tagged along and found an almost unlimited food supply in the lush palm trees. Under these conditions, Hunt offered, rats would reach a population of a few million within a couple years. From there, time would take its toll. Hunt's findings caused a stir among Easter Island scientists, John Flenley among them, a pollen analyst at New Zealand's University of Massey, accepts that the numerous rats would have had some impact on the island, but, quote, whether they could have deforested the place, I'm not sure. Flenley's work on Rapa Nui involved taking core samples from several lake beds formed in the island's volcanic craters. Quote, the sediment was undisturbed. Each layer was put down on top of the layer before, says Flenley, referring to the core samples from one crater's lake beds. It's like a history book. You just have to learn to read the pages. In these cores, Flenley found evidence of charcoal, suggesting humans burned more or less wood over the years. But the samples also showed an abundance of pollen, indicating that the island had once been very heavily forested. Mm -hmm. The pollen rate then dropped off dramatically. Quote, When I dated the deforestation at that site, it came starting at about 800 AD and finished at this particular site as early as 1000 AD a finding in line with other radiocarbon dates on the island. Since this was one of the first settlement sites, Flenley says, it makes sense that deforestation would have occurred even earlier than it did on other parts of the island. Hunt, Flenley says, quote, has definitely shown a minimum age for people being there, but the actual arrival of people could have been somewhat earlier. Everyone's pulses pounding out their butts just yet. (laughs) Other scientists, including jo, uh, Joanne Van Tilburg, founder of the Easter Island Statue Project and a scientist at the University of California, Los Angeles, are also skeptical of a later colonization date. Van Tilburg is one of the island's leading archaeologists and has studied the Moai for nearly 30 years. Quote, 
it's not logical that they were constructing megalithic sites within a few years of arrival on the island, she says. By 1200 AD, they were certainly building platforms, the stone walls or ahu on which the islanders perched the moai, and others have described crop intensification at about that time. It's hard for me to be convinced that his series of excavations can overturn all of this information. Unquote. Despite these questions, Hunt managed to publish these findings in science. And at this point, those of you who are not audibly asleep, I can hear you going, who cares, Wyatt? Get to those crazy cool spook town Moai already. <laughs> so I will turn now to the Moai statues, those spooky somber stone heads that dot the entire island, and their much less spooky or memorable Ahu platforms. <laughs> Theories have naturally blazed about from the very mundane to the explicitly otherworldly. It is understandable. Rapa Nui is one of the most isolated places on Earth. So why here of anywhere would we see such unique efforts on such a massive scale? Was it humans? Was it definitely aliens? <laughs> Van Tilburg and her colleagues have remained very busy during the last 13 years. Just last year, from the time of that article that I first read from, mm -hmm. just last year in 2019, Van Tilburg and her team published scientific evidence that the ancient Rapa Nui carvers worked at the behest of the elite ruling class to carve the nearly 1,000 moai on the island because they, and the community at large, believed the statues were capable of producing agricultural fertility and thereby critical food supplies. Hmm. The team focused their analysis on just two of the monoliths found within the inner region of the Rano Raraku Quarry, which is the, the origin of 95% of the island's more than 1,000 moai. Nearly 1,000 and now more than 1,000. There's more just in the span of time that I've been reading these sentences. <laughs> <laughs> Extensive laboratory testing of soil samples from the same area shows evidence of foods such as banana, taro, and sweet potato. Van Tilburg said the analysis showed that in addition to serving as a quarry and a place for carving statues, Rano Raraku also was the site of a productive agricultural area. Quote, Our excavation broadens our perspective of the Moai and encourages us to realize that nothing, no matter how obvious, is ever exactly as it seems. I think our new analysis humanizes the production process of the Moai, Van Tilburg said. Hmm. A professor of Earth and Environmental Systems at the University of the South in Suwannee, uh, Tennessee, Sarah Sherwood joined the Easter Island Project after meeting another member of Van Tilburg's team at a geology conference. She wasn't originally looking for soil fertility, but out of curiosity and research habit, she did some fine-scale testing of samples brought back from the quarry. Quote, when we got the chemistry results back, I did a double-take. There were really high levels of things that I never would have thought would be there, such as calcium and phosphorus. Kryptonite. And kryptonite. And basalt. <laughs> the soil chemistry showed high levels of elements that are key to plant growth and essential for high yields. El uh, everywhere else on the island, the soil was being very quickly worn out, eroding, being leached of elements that feed plants. But in the quarry with its constant new influx of small fragments of the bedrock generated by the quarrying process, there is a perfect feedback system of water, natural fertilizer, and nutrients. Unquote. Oh. 
She said it also looks like the ancient indigenous people of Rapa Nui were very intuitive about what to grow, planting multiple crops in the same area, which can help maintain soil fertility. The moai that Van Tilburg's team excavated were discovered upright in place, one on a pedestal and the other in a deep hole, indicating they were meant to remain there. Quote, this study radically alters the idea that all standing statues in Rano Raraku were simply awaiting transport out of the quarry, Van Tilburg said. Hmm. That is, these and probably other upright moai in Rano Raraku were retained in place to ensure the sacred nature of the quarry itself. The moai were central to the idea of fertility, and in Rapa Nui belief, their presence here stimulated agricultural food production. Van Tilburg and her team estimate the statues from the inner quarry were raised by or before 1510 to 1645 AD. Wow. Activity in this part of the quarry most likely began sometime around 1455, but most production of moai had ceased in the early 1700s due to Western contact. Thank you, Westerners. Mm Mm-hmm. This is the first definitive study to reveal the quarry as a complex landscape and to make a definitive statement that links soil fertility, agriculture, quarrying, and the sacred nature of the moai. Van Tilburg and her team are working on another study that analyzes the rock art carvings that exist on only three of the moai. I can't wait to hear what they find out, and I will update us all. Yeah. Hopefully before we have wiped ourselves out. (laughs) Also in 2019... Binghamton University archaeologist Carl Lipo and his team published a paper in PLOS One investigating why the ancient Rapa Nui built their monuments in their respective locations around the island, considering how much time and energy was required to construct and move them. Lipo and his co-authors used quantitative spatial modeling to explore the potential relations between Ahu, again the platform, construction, and subsistence resources such as rock mulch, agricultural gardens, marine resources, and freshwater sources, the three most critical resources on Rapa Nui. Their results suggest that Ahu locations are explained by their proximity to uh, limited freshwater sources. Quote, the issue of water availability, or the lack of it, has often been mentioned by researchers who work on Rapa Nui. When we started to examine the details of hydrology, we began to notice that freshwater access and statue location were tightly linked together. It wasn't obvious when walking around, with the water emerging at the coast during uh, low tide. One doesn't necessarily see obvious indications of water. But as we started to look at areas around Ahu, we found that those locations were exactly tied to spots where the fresh groundwater emerges, largely as a diffuse layer that flows out at the water's edge. The more we looked, the more consistently we saw this pattern. Very interesting. I didn't write it in my notes, but I did read it out there. Van Tilburg kind of contests this proposition, basically saying that these freshwater seepages are essentially everywhere, and they change over time. So what we see today says basically nothing about what we would have seen at the time these statues were being built, and... I got the gist that it was kind of like noisy enough data that, you know, if you if you throw a clear enough shape down into this pool of data, you will come out with like, look, it perfectly matches. Like, uh, so the fact that they're looking for that association kind of helped them find it, in her opinion. Yeah. But either way. So we can end either way on this note and return to Terry Hunt, now the University of Arizona, to finish off the proximity of the monuments to fresh water. Mm-hmm. 
Quote, the monuments and statues are located in places with access to a resource critical to islanders on a daily basis. Fresh water. (laughs) (laughs) Period. (laughs) No, in this way, the monuments and statues of the islanders' deified ancestors reflect generations of sharing, perhaps on a daily basis, centered on water, but also food, family, and social ties, as well as cultural lore that reinforced knowledge of the island's precarious sustainability. And the sharing points to a critical part of explaining the island's paradox. Despite limited resources, the islanders succeeded by sharing in activities, knowledge, and resources for over 500 years until European contact disrupted life with foreign diseases, slave trading, and other misfortunes of colonial interests. Misfortunes. I tell you. So there you stupid have it. Easter Island, (laughs) a.k.a. Rapa Nui. We did it. We saw it. We felt it. We loved it, and now we can leave it, and it's stupid Moai. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a it's a place people are all very familiar with and have heard about <laughs> and seen pictures of and videos and stuff, but still a lot of stuff that I did not know about it. Just uh, Oh, yeah. yeah this was that's fun really to, cool. This was fun to prep for, and I'm sure I cannot wait to hear more, honestly, the uh, especially those the carvings, the glyphs on the sides of some of these Moai, mm. very intriguing looking, and... Um, you know, we'll we'll see what comes of that. But a uh, fascinating culture. This was also we we talked, or at least I talked, uh, briefly about this uh, culture. This was with the Rongo Rongo tablets, which was the sort of <laughs> proto language sim- symbology. Well, that's what I was thinking: is that these carvings on some of the um, statues Stones. could could uh, perhaps translate to something along the lines of a yam, a yam. <laughs> yeah. He harvests a yam. He harvests a papaya. He harvests. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they got, you know, when your when your resources are limited, you get a pretty one-track mind. I knew I shouldn't have carved all that while I was hungry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Never carve when hungry. So anyway, there you have it. Rapa Nui, uh Namadal, Pacific Islands. Surprisingly contemporary of each other is pretty cool. Indeed, this is true. Kind of fun. I wonder if there wasn't some sort of cultural interchange. Hard to say. Those That's peoples. we're talking couple thousand miles across the pacific true but but polynesians are uh, famously capable seafaring people if moana taught us nothing else (laughs) it's that you can find boats in caves and the rock uh beat up a little chicken there was like a song or something (laughs) the fact that they are a uh a voyaging people (laughs) ah yes um, and just like Moana, this episode is over. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us on this surprisingly <laughs> loopy midday record. Um, I tell you, and uh, join us next week. We're going to be heading uh, just a little bit further northeast to Central America, America, for our third week of August. This show. Around the world. the world. Before we leave you for the day, please do consider checking out our uh, Patreon and our shop with all the cool new merch in it. Your stuff oh, yeah, in there, I think do. you will like. It's all, oh, it's so comfy. I've gotten to a point in my uh, adulthood where I almost exclusively wear button downs and almost never wear T-shirts. But now that I've been looking at our shop, uh, I'm like, I gotta buy some of these T-shirts. I like these T-shirts. And I happen to just spontaneously wear my super duper stitious t-shirt to bed last night oh i'm wearing it even now 
And not much else. Oh, boy. <laughs> Before we leave for good, the cause we want you to support this week is our friend Wilson's cool stickers for uh, COVID relief. He is selling these stickers on his Etsy. We'll, we'll post the link to that. The name of the sticker is Mask Watch. It's a great image Ooh. of Sasquatch wearing a uh, mask, and 75% uh, of the profits will be donated to COVID relief. I like that. So thanks, I Wilson. I like that very much. Yes, thank you, Wilson. Thanks to anyone who wants to help support that cause, and thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh he's gone. <laughs>